You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader of the News and Observer, hosting this week, and here with me are Will Doran, also of the NNO, Lauren Horsch of the North Carolina Insider, and Colin Campbell of the NC Insider. Uh, this week, we got some new budget forecasts from Governor Cooper's office, and uh, Cooper uh, launched some uh, attacks on the tax cuts that are scheduled to happen in North Carolina. Uh, the We found out about a candidate who has an unusual living situation as he runs for office in North Carolina's new maps. Uh, we also found out about uh, an attempt to hack North Carolina's election website. And there's a potential do-over in, in w- another election in Sharp, the town of Sharpsburg. So we'll talk about all that, but let's start with the budget uh, forecast, an economic forecast. You guys, all three of you were uh, there. Um, so this was uh, Governor Roy Cooper's budget uh, director explaining kind of what the revenue picture and uh, spending picture looks like. Uh, in the ahead of the short session that'll start in May. So, um, Will, what was his bottom line? Yeah, basically the the takeaway that we got from it was that there are a lot of things on the radar for both the governor and the legislature. Uh, you know, Hurricane Matthew recovery efforts, uh, prison safety reform, tackling the opioid epidemic, possibly considering uh, additional raises for teachers and other state employees. Um, you know, just kind of a long laundry list of you know the usual suspects and. You know, that kind of stuff isn't free. It's going to add up to, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars if, you know, our, our leaders here decide they want to tackle all of that. Um, and then at the same time, uh, uh, Charlie Prusi, his budget director, also said that we are about $91 million short of our revenue target so far this year. Um, and obviously the year's not over yet, and, you know, the budget isn't going to be, uh, you know, it's not going to go in place until July, so there's still you know plenty of time for the the state to make up its revenue. But at the moment, it appears that we are kind of uh, uh, lagging behind a little bit. Um, so that was uh, that was the big takeaway I got. I don't know what uh, Colin or yeah, Lauren I mean, there's sort of the I guess laying the political groundwork for the kind of messaging we're going to see out of the governor's office going into budget season. That's basically that. Uh, the tax cuts that Republicans uh, approved in the last year or two are bad and are starving the state of much-needed revenue, um, and therefore it's going to be harder to uh, fund these, uh, what uh, I guess Perusi was referring to as a structural deficit, where the uh, revenues don't necessarily match up to the amount of spending once you factor in inflation and some other needs that were uh, laid out during that process. I should note that the Republicans' response is that um, we've been fine so far with these uh, tax cuts and revenues come in ahead of us expected, possibly because that somehow stimulated uh, the business climate um, in the process of lowering taxes, uh, and there's not a need to uh, worry about having to make big budget cuts in, in a result of uh, the way these tax cuts have gone down. Um, so that's definitely going to be the fight between the two branches of government as we go into budget season. We heard similar things last year. We'll hear them again this year. So amid all these uh, federal budget, uh, federal tax cuts, people may have forgotten what the legislature did to cut taxes in North Carolina. So what's coming in terms of a tax cut here? Yeah, so it takes effect in 2019, I believe. Uh, the corporate rate drops uh, fairly substantially. I've, I've 
knew the percentage off of my top of my head, I'd be better off than I am. Uh, and then um, the personal income tax goes from 5.499% to, I think, 5.25%, uh, I believe. Yeah, that's the correct. Yeah. Um, so pretty big uh, changes in taxes on the horizon. Um, and it's unlikely Republicans are going to decide they don't want to do that. Um, it's already set in stone that they're doing it. Uh, but Cooper is going to be pushing them to uh, perhaps repeal the tax cuts. Yeah, well, and, you know, there, there's plenty of ways of looking at that. Cooper's office says, you know, without these tax cuts that they've put in place since 2013, you know, the state would have an extra $3 billion to work with. Um, and Republicans say, well, that's $3 billion more in the pockets of people and businesses here in the state. Um, so I, I think we're probably going to just, it's going to be like a, a ping pong match of these claims <laughs> just going yeah, back and forth. Yeah, and then, the, the, you know, the numbers that are shown off at these things uh, always differ. Um, you know, the, the Cooper budget folks were giving us the numbers with uh, inflation, I think, factored into them as you compared spending on things like education and tuition over the past uh, few years since uh, Republicans took charge. Uh, Republicans will run the numbers slightly differently in a way that makes uh, it look like there has been more significant increases in, in education spending and, and stuff like that. So, you know, everybody can uh, massage the numbers to, to make their point, and we'll continue to see that going forward. And Republicans have been uh, saying that their tax cuts are to credit for the um, surpluses that we've been seeing. The numbers have been running ahead of projections, but um, any idea what changed, why now we're seeing them come behind projections? Well, this is or? interesting. The way the um, the budget year tends to run, we've seen minor deficits before uh, based on projections in the first half of the year, and then they tend to kind of catch up uh, as you get closer to the end of the fiscal year. I mean, there's no way to know for sure if that'll happen again this year, but that's sort of been the pattern the last couple of years, um, particularly when what was showing up as a potential deficit was a rel relatively small one, and that's what we've been seeing in the projections so far this year. So um, it's entirely possible that could be the case again. Um, but of course, that all depends on the economy continuing to grow. At some point, the economy slows down, then uh, things come in well behind what's projected, and um, the talking points have to change a little bit, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> anything else notable? Did uh, um, Perusi talk about sort of what's uh, kind of uh, ahead in the economy and uh, what sort of uh, we have to watch out for? Uh, he, he made a couple of uh, interesting points about the broader state economy. Um, something that I didn't realize was that uh, they were talking about employment numbers in various parts of the state. And, uh, you know, as, as probably everyone knows, you know, Wake County, Durham County are just exploding with jobs right now. But if you look at a um, place like uh, Rocky Mount or Goldsboro, there's actually fewer jobs in those cities now, today in 2016, 2017, than there were at the height of the Great Recession. Um, you know, just industry has not rebounded. People have continued leaving, moving away from those places. Um, and they, uh, they had a county-by-county county map of, you know, projected population growth over the next few years for the whole state. And you know, if you look at basically all of eastern North Carolina, except for a few of the coastal communities around, you know, Wilmington and the Outer Banks, you know, basically everything inland, it doesn't look great for the next decade or so in terms of uh, population growth. Really, a lot of places facing a population decline. Um, and then, you know, obviously places like Triangle, Charlotte, 
Yeah, it was just staggering to me how much of the wage growth has been uh, focused in uh, the Triangle area and in the Mecklenburg County area, that even I always kind of assumed anything urban, so including the triad, would be doing relatively well uh, since the recession. And the triad's numbers were uh, sharply lower than I would have guessed uh, based on some of those wage growth projections. But it really it comes down to uh, the, the differing pictures that each political party is painting in the state. The Republicans are looking at all these uh, rankings of great best places to grow your business and some of the corporate relocations we've seen recently and saying, look, our policies are working, the economy is growing, everybody's doing great, and the Cooper people are pointing out the massive disparities in population growth, wage growth, job growth um, between the more prosperous parts of North Carolina and the ones that really are are doing worse than they did pre-recession. This is also the week that we got the uh, the latest census numbers, and uh, those were kind of interesting. We yeah. grew by the size of, I think you tweeted, another Wilmington, right? Yeah, the city of Wilmington. It was funny, the, uh, during Perusi's presentation, he said that uh, Cooper likes to talk about how we're essentially adding a new another high point every year, but I noticed the uh, when I was trying to look for a comparison, the city of high point and city of Wilmington are fairly similar in size, and I find Wilmington a better example because I've never actually been into High Point. That's not a place you tend to go for fun, but Wilmington is, so you have a better sense of how big that city is. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that's come up with putting North Carolina, I think, one of the fifth fastest growing states in the country uh, in terms of the raw numbers of uh, population. A lot of that coming from uh, births over deaths, but a lot of uh, in-migration from uh, both internationally and uh, other states where uh, we're, we're gaining more residents from other areas than we're losing residents to those areas. No offense to all our High Point visitors out yeah, there. Yeah, I'm going to have listeners out yeah, there. Yeah, the we city of High Point is going to be uh, tweeting at me after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think all of us are North Carolina tra- transplants, right, on this podcast? Yes. yes. So yes. there you go, yeah. proving the point. Yeah. <laughs> no natives here. Yep, exactly. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, we need to get some natives in here for the next yeah, one. Yeah, well, Andy Spay is a native. native. He's yeah. not on us this week. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, let's see, Lauren. Let's talk about uh, the state board of elections and what they had to say Friday when they uh, went before a legislative committee uh, to talk about election security. They want some more staff for cybersecurity. Uh, and uh, what was their what was their reasoning? Why do they think we need to step up our uh, the state needs to step up their efforts against uh, hack- hackers? Well, I, it's kind of twofold. So they want it because there's a lot of concerns about hacking, and those real life concerns translated into you know, the website actually being hacked this summer, um, June 2017. Um, this wasn't just centralized around North Carolina, but it also happened in all other states across the country. Um, hackers from System DZ um, wanted to get onto the front page of a lot of state agency websites, and they were successful in a lot of areas of the country, um, but they weren't quite successful here in North Carolina with the State Board of elections and ethics enforcement website. They got onto a portion of their website. We're not quite sure what part of the website, but uh, Kim Strack, the executive director, did say, if you knew where to look, you would have found this, you know, black page that said, you know, I love Islamic State and other things about Donald Trump and you've been hacked by System DZ. Do we have any idea who these guys are? No, I didn't feel safe going and looking because I myself <laughs> didn't want to get hacked. Um, so I felt I thought that was just like asking for it at that point. Um, but I mean, they they tried to hack all sorts of state agencies across the country. Um, so yeah, the state board just really wants to make sure that they're protected, um, and they want to make sure that 
you know, they don't have these external and internal threats because, I mean, that system DZ was an external threat. But if you get one bad actor into the state board as an employee, you can be internally hacked in a heartbeat um, because they'll know the internal systems of the voting equipment and of the website. Um, And that can prove very damaging during an election year, like um, Strack said. Uh, They were lucky because, one, it wasn't on their front page of their website and also wasn't an election year. So had that happened, say, in June 2016, you know, the entire election could have been called into question and say, how can we trust that this is going to be a fair election if we're being hacked? Um, So they're just trying to really cover their bases and make sure that they can protect themselves. Um, So, yeah, we don't know how many staffers they're asking for yet. Um, They did tell legislative leaders that it could be, you know, permanent staff or maybe some contractors if they needed them, but they want people in-house and not just bringing in a couple people every once in a while to fix everything. And their IT team is wonderful, uh, Strack said, but they need extra people just to make sure that they will be safe. Okay. And we saw that every vote counts this week. Uh, yes. Because uh, if you've been paying attention to Virginia, uh, basically it's a tie uh, in the key race for uh, the State House of Delegates and uh, might be uh, headed for, what, a coin toss or a drawing yeah, lots? Yeah, like draw, drawing of lots. And uh, <laughs> that can be a lot of things. I know in North Carolina here, sometimes they flip a coin. I do believe what they're looking at in Virginia is putting one, two names in a hat and drawing or in a bowl or something like that. Um, but, yeah, so there's just one district. I do believe the 94th district in Virginia. It was uh, the Democrat earlier this week. They had called the race for the Democrat um, by one vote. Uh, but then they went and challenged that vote to a, do you believe, a three-judge panel, and that three-judge panel threw out that one vote um, or gave it to the Republic. I can't remember because, again, pay attention to North Carolina politics. Um, but so if you look at that ballot that's in question, I really don't know who this person voted for um, because, you know, you have the two candidates, the Republican and the Democrat, and each of those bubbles next to the candidates are bubbled in, um, but one is crossed out. But then you go over to the other part of the ballot where that person votes for the governor and they also, you know, start to cross out their vote for governor. So it's very, you know, I personally would have said, let's throw that ballot out, but I'm not a federal judge. I don't get to have that opinion. Um, But I mean, it's just interesting. You think about all these crazy things with ballots and I just brought me right back to, you know, 2000 and the hanging chads. I feel like if I was a voter in that situation, I realized I had voted for a candidate I didn't mean to. I would just go to the precinct judge and ask for a fresh ballot, right? Just, hey, can you burn this real quick and give me a new one? And, I, you and, and that might be, you know, I, wouldn't be, I don't know if I would have thought to do that in that situation because I wouldn't have questioned my vote, but I think there needs to maybe be clearer procedures of, oh, crap, I screwed up. What do I do next? Can I turn it in? Can you burn my ballot so I can get a new one? That sort of thing. But it's just crazy because if it comes back and they do decide that the Democrat has won, or the, the Democrats' lot gets chosen, um, their House of Delegates will be split 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats. And this is something North Carolina has seen before back in 2003, where it was actually a 60-60 split because uh, there's 120 members of the House of Representatives here in North Carolina. So at that point, uh, they had to actually negotiate where there would be co-speakers, so you would have a Republican Speaker of the House and a Democratic Speaker of the House, and then they just kind of switched off duties of presiding, and all committees were evenly split. Um, 
So it's just interesting to think how Virginia might have to look to North Carolina for how to solve a problem they might have if, you know, their lot is drawn that way and, you know, whatever court case comes up, you know, gets decided one way or the other. I remember our old political cartoons that we that ran in the NNO of the two-headed speaker with sort of one head grafted onto the neck of the I, other one. I would love uh, to see that because that was before my time in North Carolina. It's worth, uh, it's, so. it's worth checking out in the archives. <laughs> Uh, but that, uh, of course, the, the postscript to that is that somebody ended up in federal prison over that yes. uh, because, uh, well, I don't remember if it was federal prison, but in prison over that because uh, the uh, because of the way that uh, that co-speaker arrangement came about. Yeah, I might have to throw this over to Colin, but I do believe someone took a bribe and then it just went downhill from there. Yeah, there was a party switch um, where... The 50-50, uh, or the, I guess it would be a 60-60 split in North Carolina, since we have 120 in our house, uh, came about because of a party switch. It was not the voters' will to have an evenly split uh, house, but uh, one candidate decided to move from, I think, uh, Republican to Democratic, uh, which allowed that whole co-speakership arrangement to come about. And uh, it, it later turned out that the Democratic co-speaker Jim Black, uh, sort of a notorious name in North Carolina politics now, uh, had bribed the guy who switched parties um, with like $50,000 and a job for his son or something like that. Um, and uh, that that was the result of that uh, happening. But uh, despite that, apparently the reviews were relatively positive uh, of how uh, two-party split uh, power sharing actually worked out in practice where you had uh, one person from each party leading each committee meeting and uh, having to get some sort of bipartisan consensus on most of the legislation. Was that the bribe that happened in the IHOP bathroom? The uh, That might have been remember. a different one. Because I know there was also something. There was also the chiropractors. Yeah, the chiropractors or the eye doctors. No, various, it was the chiropractors. Oh, yeah, yeah, there, yeah. there was industries involved there. Uh, Jim Black was a. Jim Black was, yeah. a, I think, an eye doctor. He was an eye doctor, yeah, and it was yeah. the chiropractors, maybe. You yeah. know, before my time, so I don't want to get too uh, deep into the history there, other than. Jim Black uh, had interesting ways of doing business. Yes. Nothing good happens in an IHOP bathroom. What really? were they thinking? Yeah. I've worked in all-night breakfast restaurants. Just, no. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, if I were going to, like, pass a bribe, I don't know if that would be my chosen location. I don't know what my chosen location would be, but that wouldn't occur to me to go to an IHOP bathroom. You wouldn't do it is the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll uh, hope that the Virginia situation doesn't end up with anything like that. Um, so, uh, Colin, you, speaking of close elections, uh, in Sharpsburg, uh, where you would maybe expect a close election because it's a, a very small town, uh, it is uh, not only a close election, but possibly an election do-over. Um, so uh, tell us about what happened in that Wilson County town. Yeah, so this is a town, this is sort of a unique town in that uh, Sharpsburg, while it only has about 1,000 people in it, is split between three different counties. Um, and in some of the parts, you have to leave town to go vote because that county's uh, polling place is not actually in Sharpsburg. So for well, the section of the town that's in Wilson County, uh, they had to drive about six miles south to Elm City to vote. Uh, and a lot of the folks apparently in that area didn't have transportation, so it was a hassle they had to organize when they were going to go vote. So anyway, they get down there, find out that um, they'd only printed just a 
handful of votes in a precinct where there's about 200 registered voters. So apparently the elections board had screwed up their calculations of how many ballots they were going to need. End result is that they don't have ballots for two and a half hours. So you get there and you find out you can either wait a couple hours to vote or you can go and come back. But the problem was a lot of people weren't able to go and come back. Uh, a lot of times when this happens, uh, voting hours are extended because there's no state board of election to extend voting hours. That didn't happen in this case. Uh, so the uh, losing mayoral candidate lost by only a few votes. Uh, he's African-American. A lot of his supporters uh, evidently were, and, and they were a lot in this, this particular district. So he made the case that uh, this could have impacted the state of the election. He wanted a new election. He's got help from the uh, Southern Coalition for Social Justice, which, of course, is a group active in a lot of uh, voting rights cases. They're involved in some of the redistricting cases. They decided to uh, jump into this case and give this guy legal representation. Uh, so this, where that stands now is that the Wilson County Board of Elections has held a hearing. They've agreed that uh, their recommendation is that there be a new election held in Sharpsburg, and I believe it would actually affect the entire town, including the parts in other counties uh, that didn't have the ballot irregularity. Um, and normally, again, if we didn't have a vacant state board of elections as a result of the governor suing the legislature over what the state board of elections should look like, uh, the State Board of Elections could order a new election. Since they don't exist right now, uh, that's most likely going to go into Wake County Superior Court, and a judge is going to uh, determine when and if there is a new election in Sharpsburg. So no word yet on how soon we'll find out about that. Uh, meantime, the current mayor, who uh, won by just a couple of votes, uh, will stay in office um, and uh, won't be certified as a, for a new term until all this is settled. All right. Uh, and you kind of uh, spent the week covering odd election news. So, yeah, uh, it's my new thing. The, <laughs> the other odd election news is the involves the residency of somebody who's running uh, for uh, the legislature. Um, so um, A.J. Dowd, and I assume that's how you pronounce yeah. it, is living in a funeral home. Uh, and uh, that has to do with the new maps uh, that have been drawn by the special master and the, uh, and the legislature. Uh, so explain how that Yeah, works. so this is an interesting case. I've been following a lot of the uh, candidate filings. Uh, while the filing period for legislative races is until February, a lot of uh, folks are setting up their campaign committees so they can start fundraising. Uh, we've been trying to keep tabs on that to get a sense for uh, what the election landscape is going to look like. And so there's a because of the redistricting process, uh, there's been a few incumbents that have been double bunked, and then there's a few sort of newly created districts where there's no incumbent, it's wide open. And one of those uh, is a district that consists of Iredell and uh, Gadkin counties, just west of Winston-Salem. Um, it's a re heavily Republican-leading district, so uh, probably it's going to be a contested Republican primary, um, and whoever wins that probably gets a seat in the state Senate. Um, and so one of the candidates to file so far is this guy, A.J. Dowd, who's uh, fairly well-known within Republican circles. His uh, campaign website says he's known as uh, Mr. GOP for all of his uh, volunteer work uh, within the, the party organization. Uh, he's known around the state as a Republican candidate for Secretary of State last year. He was in the Republican primary and I believe lost to Michael LaPaglia, who in turn lost to Elaine Marshall. Um, so he's, he's served on like the state lottery, lottery commission. Yeah, so he's, so he's uh, fairly prominent in, in Republican politics. Uh, but when he was last on the political scene for his uh, run for Secretary of State, he was listed as uh, a resident of the town of Pilot Mountain, which is in Surrey County, and not in this district. It's actually in Phil Berger's district. Uh, and I'm guessing he decided that uh, it would not be very productive for him to run against the powerful Senate leader, um, but he was interested in a run for Senate. So uh, he's been in the process of moving to uh, 
Uh, Yadkin County for now, he says he's looking for a house in either Yadkin or Iredell and hasn't settled on location, although he uh, sent me a couple Zillow listings he was looking at when I uh, asked him questions about it. Uh, <laughs> but for now, his voter registration was changed in November uh, to an address in the town of East Bend, which if you look up is the address of a funeral home that uh, Mr. Dowd owns um, in that area. And so I had to uh, approach him and ask, you know, are you indeed uh, living at this address where you're registered to vote? And he said, yes, there's, you know, an apartment attached because of the 24-7 type of work that's involved in uh, running a funeral home. Um, and he's going to be there temporarily sort of while he searches for a permanent home that he, he and his wife plan to uh, permanently live in, in this particular district. Uh, so this is a little bit unusual, but uh, some interesting constitutional issues related to residency. The Constitution of the state says you have to live in a district for a year prior to the election day, uh, which I think arguably looks like uh, Mr. Dowd is probably fine on that count here. Uh, but that's apparently waived for this year by the redistricting uh, lawsuit decision because the districts are sort of in flux right now. Um, that's not necessarily going to be in effect uh, for the filing period. So um, if you haven't already moved to the district you want to run in, uh, you, you've got a little bit more time, I think, to uh, successfully do that and, and be a legal candidate of wherever you don't currently live. Um, and so uh, this is a district that doesn't have any incumbent. Uh, yeah, so so far we've got two Republican candidates. There's Dowd and another guy by the name of John Galena, who is a uh, Iraq War veteran, a former member of the NC National Guard, who runs a charity that helps uh, veterans find housing. Um, and he lives in Statesville. Uh, and while I, I couldn't get him to uh, make any comment directly about uh, Mr. Dowd's residency situation, uh, Galena did stress that he is uh, born and raised in uh, Iredell County. Okay. All right. Uh, and of course, uh, your story about this set off uh, uh, a slew of bad puns yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, the various. Um, um, uh, I guess some of my favorites were. Um, you think it hurts his it chances? Hurts his chances. Someone said they doubt he actually lives at the residence. Uh, so if you look at my tweet about this and just look at the replies, you can uh, read about a dozen or so bad puns related to a funeral director and uh, perhaps add your own. It's all the ones you would think coffin, morbid. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. So uh, good stuff. Okay. Well, let's take a break and come back with headliner of the week. Please stay with us. Hey, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. Uh, it had this phone number on it, and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger near you. Learn how at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. And we're back with more Domecast, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week. Will Doran, who's your headliner? Um, I'm going to go with the State Employees Association of North Carolina, SCENIC. Uh, they got a new executive director this week in Robert Broom. He's a longtime uh, real estate lobbyist uh, who's been all around the southeast, including here in North Carolina, so a lot of people are probably familiar with his name. Um, and he's worked on political campaigns before. He worked in the Tennessee House of Representatives, a uh, long career in politics, um, and he is now the man in charge of advocating for uh, the state employees, state retirees in Scenic. Um, so uh, they were excited to get him on, new boss replacing uh, the outgoing director, Mitch Leonard, 
Um, and then also uh, the president of Scenic, uh, obviously different from the executive director, the president is Stanley Drury. Uh, he got named to a new uh, committee that the state has on prison safety reform. Uh, that's been a big, big thing that uh, Scenic has been pushing for um, ever since uh, we've had the guards uh, killed this year in uh, in Birdie and also in the Pasquotank prisons. Uh, they've been uh, really, uh, you know, driving a pretty hard line on, you know, improving conditions for the state employees who work in our prisons. And uh, the state is now recognizing that, putting a scenic president on a board for that. So uh, we'll see what changes he's able to, uh, to help make. Okay. Uh, the uh, um, There was a previous director of scenic who left in disgrace, but uh, this one uh, is leaving for retirement, right? I think. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mitch Leonard, the guy who's leaving now, he took over for Dana Cope, um, who resigned, and then very quickly after he resigned, went to prison, uh, following an investigation that really started uh, here at the News and Observer uh, with our former colleague Joe Neff, um, who got some tips from some uh, some people inside of Scenic that uh, that Dana Cope had been. Uh, taking money from the organization and using it to pay for landscaping and uh, manscaping. He got, I think, some eyebrow waxing and things like that. Whoa! <laughs> that's not okay. Is that, I, I don't want to go there. That's the right use for that term, but I don't know. <laughs> Among other things, uh, I think, you know, there are like the tickets and, you know, fancy clothes, things like that. Um, but in the end, I think it was half a million dollars or more, um, uh, Scenic, you know, denied it, denied it, denied it. Um, Joe kept reporting it and had all the documents to prove it. They eventually basically admitted that it was true. Then, you know, criminal investigation started, and uh, he is now scheduled to get out of jail in 2020. Um, So, I don't know. Maybe Robert Broom will still be the director in 2020, but uh, whoever it is, I doubt it will be Dana Cope. Okay. I guess it's dredging up old scandals week at Domecast. Um, okay, so but then you nominated them for more uh, for uh, more current reasons. Yeah, and uh, for good scenic news. is for <laughs> scenic has a new executive director Robert Broom, uh, putting some of those things behind them. So scenic in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Colin Campbell, who's your headliner? Well, while I'm tempted to go with old scandals since I wrote about uh, Billy Ray Hall of the Rural Center uh, getting a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Rural Center after uh, having an audit that caused them to lose their state funding, um, I'm actually going to go with... Uh, We're just hitting all the yeah. old highlights. I just was thinking about that now. I was like, well, might as well just, you know, go, go back to like, the highlight reel of the last decade. like the, the <laughs> request show where they ask us to play... Uh, play the hits play from the 2005. Hits. <laughs> yeah. I was stunned by that award, though, not that you're doing this for your headliner. Yeah. But they... When when that all happened, they like took his pension away. And, yeah, you know, and like, no severance pay. Uh, yeah, the agency is significantly diminished in its funding as a result of losing state funding to this day. Yeah, you know, four years later, but lifetime achievement award. <laughs> Anyway, uh, turning to my actual headliner of the week, although I guess that could be a contender too, uh, I'm going with the legislative retirement that we learned about this week. Uh, State Representative Burt Jones, who is a uh, Republican from Reedsville, uh, been in office for several terms, uh, has some fairly high-profile roles in the legislature, uh, chairing the uh, Elections Committee in the House uh, and co-chairing, I think, the Health Committee as well. He has announced this week that he is not going to seek re-election next year in his district. Uh, He says that my prayerful decision is that it is time for me to devote more time and energy to other 
important life priorities. Uh, he also says that uh, he's happy that there is a what he described as a like-minded, well-qualified friend ready to serve, one who shares the Christian conservative values I have promoted. Uh, and apparently this guy who he does not name is going to announce soon. We haven't seen an announcement. Uh, but Burt Jones uh, not running for re-election. I noticed the uh, Democratic Party uh, greeted this announcement as a, yet another sign that uh, Republicans are running scared in 2018 and don't want to run. I think that's not the case for Burt Jones because his district is sort of redrawn under these maps. is still pretty deep red, uh, and so there's a good chance that uh, this mystery man, that uh, mystery Christian man who Burt Jones has talked to and is going to run to replace him uh, is uh, got a good shot at, at winning that seat uh, after Jones leaves office. Okay. Representative Burt Jones uh, in the hat for headliner of the week, former independent, uh, yeah, which Rand I did is, not uh, realize until uh, this story. Yeah, um, you know, he's been cited as an example actually just this past term because of that uh, law that changes the uh, petition requirements for uh, unaffiliated candidates to get on the ballot. You know, they changed it for a number of different offices, but left the requirement alone for uh, House and Senate. And one of the arguments was. Well, it's a perfectly reasonable requirement because look at Burt Jones. He was unaffiliated. He went through the petition process and was elected to office. Of course, he, he turned into a Republican uh, and caucuses with a Republican once he became in office. But he did successfully run through this uh, petition process as unaffiliated when he first uh, jumped in. Burt Jones in the hat for headliner of the week along with Scenic. Okay, Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner? So I'm going to go with uh, recently off the market, uh, Representative Dwayne Hall, a Democrat from Wake County. Uh, so he proposed to his girlfriend, Katie Stanley, who is a legislative liaison for the Department of Administration, uh, last night in the executive mansion. Um, so apparently Governor Cooper and First Lady Kristen Cooper helped him out and let them kind of, you know, have a room in the uh, executive mansion. I do believe it was off the foyer, his uh, L.A. told me. Um, Good so, Christmas trees over there, I've heard. Yes, they're, they're very nice. If you pay attention to Governor Cooper's Snapchat, very nice Christmas trees. Um, but yeah, so uh, Dwayne Hall and uh, Katie Stanley are now engaged. They've been dating since February 14th. And yes, that is Valentine's Day for you smart people out there. Um, and she used to actually be a legislative assistant uh, for Representative Joe John, another Democrat from Wake County. She's been in L.A. for various members over the years, too. I think she's been there for at least a decade um, so just great congratulations to the couple. Um, it's a good state government proposal involving the legislative branch and the executive branch. Yeah, I saw the tweet said that Representative Brian Turner uh, supplied the champagne, champagne for it. Champagne, yeah. So a lot, of, a lot of people were involved from state government, um, and Brian Turner is a Democrat from Bunk Buncombe County. Um, so, yeah, I just thought it was nice. And after Elaine Marshall got married earlier this year, I do believe also at the executive mansion. So it's just kind of nice to see love is in the air. All right. Well, I can't remember whether we made Elaine Marshall headliner that week or not, but I guess uh, for uh, uh, congratulatory reasons, uh, we will uh, have Dwayne Hall as our headliner of the week. You should also note he was wearing a very stylish bright red uh, oh, yeah. sport coat on the Capitol Tonight Show uh, this week. Uh, so very he's clearly uh, being very festive in his post-engagement. <laughs> Okay. And you said, you, and is, is he profiled in some kind of a magazine recently? Oh, yeah. So he, in 2015, he was named one of Raleigh's most eligible bachelor or bachelorettes. Um, so this year they did a, where are they now? And so he said, you know, he's 
going to be happily engaged because this was actually before the engagement. The article yeah. came out. Yeah, weirdly, he was talking about his marriage plans before he popped the question, which seems a little bit out of order. But you know, who am I to judge? <laughs> yes. Um, but so they are hoping to get married uh, spring 2018. I do believe focusing in on May specifically. Uh, but we'll wait to see what kind of uh, you know wedding they have. Maybe it'll also be at the executive mansion. We'll see. All right. Well, Lauren wins headliner this week uh, for that bit of good news. Uh, so Representative Dwayne Hall is our headliner of the week. Uh, that's it for Domecast. Catch us next week uh, and have a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays in the meantime. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.